Hello, Tom. Hello, Heron. We have opened some floodgates here, Heron. Really? No, you have opened the floodgates. This is your, this is your baby. You, you participated I'm just, I'm in just as well. along for the ride. You were an instigator last week too. You, you, you gave your rubber stamp to this one, Heron. I'm not letting you back out of it. Okay, okay. Right. <laughs> so before we get started on the floodo topics, do you have anything you'd like to talk about? You know, I did write something down somewhere here. <laughs> now that I think about it, I'm not. I'm not quite sure what the hell I was even thinking about when I wrote it down. Well, can you read it out at least? Uh, no. no. That, that doesn't make any sense. Like I say, I write things down in the heat of the moment that, uh-huh. uh, that just I hope will catch it. And this time, uh, actually, I, I sort of lost the idea. It was something about being humbled again by the fact that not everybody is the same or should be the same. Yes. You know, and I get sort of uppity about, <laughs> you know, my view of the world and how people should be and all that stuff. And I and that's true. I, I am uppity about it, and I feel justified in doing that. However, that doesn't alter the fact that there are just lots of people on very different paths that have nothing to do with any of this, and that that's equally valid, you know, in the eyes of Bob or, <laughs> or whatever, mm. you know. And uh, it's just, I need to remind myself of that, I guess, at times. Mm. So, I just wanted to let you know that I have recognized that again. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've got all these people who have friended me on Facebook, and, and, when I, and most of them I have no idea who they are. And, and when I look at the profiles of some of them, I wonder, why the hell have they friended me? <laughs> yeah, I just, so you you don't understand your transition from curmudgeon hermit to rock star curmudgeon hermit. Oh, well, well, it's just when I look at the th- stuff they post and the things that they you know, and I look at their their Facebook page, I can't see anything that overlaps with anything I'm doing. But the interesting thing, look, I I was waiting. I'd gotten off work and I was waiting for my wife and my Facebook message feed blew up. There's a fellow called, I think it's his name, Sam Shave, yeah. who has befriended me on Facebook a while back and is now in the Stone Ape Facebook group. Yeah. And he turns out that he's from my hometown of Canberra, Australia. Anyway, he just wanted to get in contact to let me know that he loves what we're doing and... He wants it to continue, and it's made a huge impact on his life. Oh, good. And he just wanted to let me know before we started the recording this evening. And he's in Norway, of all places. So my view is that when we put this stuff out here, it's not about us being able to understand why it's resonating with certain people. It's just that it's resonating with certain people. Oh, yeah, I, I know I know it. I, I mean, listen, I'm the one who's always saying this. It's just that every once in a while I'm faced with... You know these conundrums, <laughs> you know, and and I honestly think maybe some of these people got here by mistake because some friend of theirs or or they saw something or heard something out of context and and figured okay I'll I'll friend that guy, <laughs> but or maybe I, or there's just a part of them that's buried deeply and uh, isn't manifest in in what they post on Facebook. I mean that's always possible too anyway it's just it's just curious there, there's a, there are a couple of people who have friended me recently mm-hmm. uh, a couple of women 
Mm-hmm. And uh, they're the suspicious ones. You need to watch out for those women. Now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am suspicious, except this. Uh, well, in any case, uh, I, I just don't see any basis for any kind of friendship. They sort of want to be friends, you know. Do you, do you think? But here's a question to you: Do you think the maybe closet stone ape listeners out there? Do you think there may be? respectable language monkeys that may have just picked up through some random fashion. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. But I, the thing is, um, I'm just not sure I want to hold their hand. Well, here's an interesting question for you. In fact, this is a topic that's been suggested by multiple people for the show this week. Mm-hmm. There are a number of new listeners that are coming to our body of work fresh. And they want to understand, I mean, we've gone through the yeah. basics, we went through the basics in the early shows, but they want to be brought up to speed. Oh, okay, Jesus Christ. As short as possible. <laughs> no, nah, man. Well, if you want to do that, fine. My sense is, just pick it up from here. Don't worry about how we got here. <laughs> <laughs> just start okay. listening now. So, so, so let's give them the basics. Well, go ahead. Brain-damaged, unconscious, rascal scum language monkeys. We are referring to a majority of the population. <laughs> yeah, 98% of uh, humans, 98% of the time is my standard figure. I may be off by a couple. Mm. But we did go through a phase, folks, and you can go back. I think it's from the mid-teens to the early 20s of the Stone Ape recordings, where I put forward that there were actually sub-language monkeys out there. This is a view that I still hold. But yeah. let, let's... Ex- so, the notion is, and we had Mike King's question last week, and we have a number of questions this week associated with the voice inside the head, the language machine. Yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that, that, that phrase, language machine, has, has really been helpful. That really allows us to talk about something that I don't think we can talk about without that concept. Or at least not so easily. Anyway, go on. So, I refer to it, when I talk to people about it, as the internal narrative. Because it describes... (laughs) Because you're an academic wannabe. (laughs) (laughs) The internal narrative. That's that's right. Well, that's that's, that's the academic... This is calling someone... Rascal language monkey brain dead scum. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's like I say, you, no matter what you're doing, you're bringing your attitude with you. <laughs> you know, well, anyway. So, yeah, anyway, that's as good a description as, as uh, brain damaged language monkey. Well, no, I don't think it is really, but, but in any case, go on. I prefer brain damaged language monkeys. Uh-huh. I think that's just perfect. Uh-huh. My perspective associated with the language monkey is the notion that these are individuals who haven't yet recognized that they are distinct from their, and I'll use my term here, internal yeah. narrative. Yeah, right. Yeah, they are identified with the voice in their head. They think they're doing it. They think that's who they are. So the broad question that's come through Mike King and also through Joe the Drummer and other folk has been once you identify that it is something that is distinct from you, <laughs> how do you exist independently of it? I haven't got a clue. That's the mystery. See, that's the the, the obvious first question. I mean, once you realize that the voice in your head is not who you are, that it's not something you are doing, then the obvious question is, well, if that's not who I am, then who the hell am I? <laughs> you know? yes. and, and my answer to that is, I don't know. That's the mystery. That's where our language fails. 
that's the job that we are facing for the next, say, three decades of cognitive research is figuring out how to make sense out of all this because all of our old wives' tales and crap we've inherited from history about the self and consciousness is about 98% bullshit. You know, so we're beginning to learn a little bit about it now. And in the meantime, uh, when you ask me if the voice in my head isn't who I am, then who am I? My answer is I don't know. Or at least I don't know how to talk about it in any kind of sensible way. So I'm going to just throw into a Joe the Drama question here because this basically kicks right into where we are currently. This is Joe the Drummer's question. Heron never really gets to the meat of the (laughs) you are not the voice inside your head thing. I mean that he doesn't really try to explain what this means and what the ramifications are. I find this frustrating. I think I know exactly what he means, but I can't figure out what the hell I'm supposed to be without this information. Who am I? Well, just re- yeah, I can see. I'm looking at it here too, so yeah. I, I, mean, I know it. How to how how do I probably is what that means. How do I turn my understanding of this fact, which seems incredibly obvious, especially to someone with a lingering interest in Buddhism, uh, into something useful? Yeah, good question. <laughs> so, I mean, I I I feel I have some commentary associated with this. Well, be my guest. So he goes on to ask. Following on from that, you say, and this is me, you say that you don't really experience the voice anymore. This seems entirely remarkable to me. In fact, it's completely gobsmacking. Are you saying that you've stopped the incessant chatter in your head? When you go to bed at night and wait for sleep, how does your mind go quiet? Well, I'll answer this associated with going to sleep. I picture images in my head. I don't have a narrative. I typically have half a dozen images that I put in my head to go to sleep. And, that's and by image, you mean, uh, are these like sort of stark geometric shapes or are they uh, floral patterns no, or they're, river they're, valleys they're, or they're, friends? Or I can answer this question, Aaron. Okay. Um, they are uh, paths that I've walked down. So uh, there's a path in the Are UK. these static images or moving images? Uh, they are not moving as I move through them. They are... Static images, but as I progress through mm, them, they have shifting. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, all right. And my view actually is that when you quieten this noise, this voice inside your head, you actually get a remarkable sense of peace. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and more importantly, you can then, most of the internal noise that I have is music, it's not narrative. And it's funny, actually, because this morning was a good example. I had a dream which featured some music, and then I woke up, and the music was in my head for a good hour following waking up. Narrative does enter my head in certain circumstances. I think it would be almost impossible to, be, to speak the language. Well, you couldn't be at narrative. work. You couldn't work with other people. You couldn't function in, in your corporate life without a narrative. Well, as you look at code, I look at code in terms of dimensions and in terms of spatial mapping. So I'm talking about talking with people, you know, just dealing with, dealing with the people you work with uh, and talking about the problems that need to be solved and all of, all, of, all of that stuff that people do when they talk to one another. Oftentimes, well, here's an interesting thing. So I think oftentimes it's actually better to be silent and conscious. The internal narrative stops you from listening 
which is something that I found really strongly with people that I work with. What do with. you do to stop it? How do you actually stop it? I mean, you, 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 you can be sitting there and the narrative is going on. You're, there's some internal monologue. No, you see, this is, this is the thing that I dispute associated with this. You've okay, described so you're saying your so internal... You're, okay, you're saying then that you don't experience that at all. I have small fleeting elements of it that ah, I really am okay. pretty well... You know, and I've, told, I've talked a little bit about this, but let me talk a little bit more about this. Through my childhood and even into my adult life in terms of interacting in particular with my mother, but also my father and also a majority of my family, they do not, and I find this in people aside from my family as well, they do not engage me with questions associated with my life. They talk at me. And the internal narrative, historically, has been their voices continuing to talk at me. It's not something that I have any degree of interest in or control <laughs> yeah, that over. Get really tiresome after and all. And my view is yeah. that actually, and I've made this point on a couple of occasions directly to my mother, that if you don't engage me in conversation, if you just assert your views yeah. of how I should behave... <laughs> and how I should act, and what yeah. my role is in the world, you are firstly not giving me existential respect, but more importantly, you have no means of gauging any aspect of my life. Yeah, well, no, you, you have no relationship. Exactly. Yeah, if you want a relationship, you have to, have to show up and pay attention. Mm. But the, <laughs> you know, the important yeah. thing is actually my survival, my professional survival, and parts of my personal survival have actually been gauged on me not only paying attention, but being remarkably astute to the subtleties of what mm. goes on. Yeah. And I think if you've got a strong internal narrative, and the descriptions that you've given particularly of your internal narrative cursing you out and things like that, yeah. just seems to be that it's wasting a huge amount of processing power that could be used to actually... Oh, it's, it's totally ridiculous. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's, it's just, it, well, it's responsible for most of what's wrong in the world. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. my, my view is that actually there is a kind of advanced program and Heron is very much and this is why particularly in the discussion with Mike King an advocate of people who are just starting out with this whole thing engaging but yeah. my view is that there are actually probably things that people can do in their own lives to actually start exploring this that doesn't require an external interaction the first thing is you need to acknowledge where this narrative, or I did, this was part of my, I mean, it may not work for others, but I had to acknowledge very strongly that this narrative was primarily programmed by my parents, aspects of Australian society, my grandparents, yeah. and a variety of people that really, I'm sad to say, didn't have my best interests at heart. <laughs> That's right. They, they, weren't even, they didn't even have any interests of yours. And then heart, when yeah. you start realising that, you start, I mean, there's a point of... Um, perhaps anger and various other emotions connected with that. But oh, when you yeah. silence it, when you say, this is ridiculous, I'm not going to be embodied by this. And I, I have to deal with, I mean, through my professional life and a wide variety of other factors, I have to deal with disturbing characters that don't have my best interests at heart anyway. Yeah, so that's that's right. just pretty yeah. well standard. But my view is that if you're embodying their narratives and their baggage in your existence, you are <laughs> yeah, not going to be able you're to You're in trouble. You exactly. are in big trouble. So yeah. my view is that actually, and you do this associated with kind of initial basics, but if people want to do the more advanced course, I would recommend you actually starting to identify what components of your internal narrative map onto perhaps your parents, perhaps broader society, perhaps a variety of factors, the media, 
perceptions of body image, yeah. a wide variety of all this other crap, and then yeah. you just realise that that is not acting in your best interest. Yeah, all of these dimensions are active and uh, need to be, well, don't need to be dealt with. You can just go right on the way you've been going on if you want to. But I think once it's yeah. acknowledged and once it's acknowledged yeah. associated with patterns that can be broken and relatively easily broken, I think it's it, it behooves us to say to the listenership, empower yourself by deconstructing and discarding this thing as unnecessary. Yeah, wake up from the trance. Today. You know, language is a wonderful tool yeah. if you're using it and not being used by it. <laughs> and I would, I would implore the listeners that internal silence is actually one of, I mean, this is, this is part of meditation. It's a, there are a wide variety of things associated with internal silence that bring you a greater sense of peace on some fundamental level. And yes, it does follow, I guess, Eastern philosophy in some respect. But I think it's actually more interesting to just think of you, you as, as the notion of the earthling, which is another part of your general narrative heron that I like, is something that you should think about. That once you discard this narrative, you have an <laughs> immense amount of time you can start exploring things and other you know, possible narratives exactly. you know you, that we get to invent uh, the future planet yes is the way i see it you know so i think i've covered two out of six of joe the drummer's questions uh. <laughs> do you have anything to add to those points um no i uh, no I mean, at the time, there were a couple of things that popped into my head, but they're gone now, so, <laughs> you know. Yes. So, is it absolutely sweltering hot where you are currently? Yeah, well, you know, uh, I just happened to be outside a few minutes ago because oh, okay. it's actually cooler out there than it was in here. Mm. And I heard the air conditioning go on. Oh. If I'd been in the house, I wouldn't have heard it and wouldn't have known. I would have left the door open. Uh-huh. But anyway, they got home and they thought it was – I mean, they never turned the air conditioning on. Wow, it's sufficiently hot for the house. Yeah, but they, turn the they, turned, they turned the air conditioning on, so now it's great in here. Oh, okay. Very <laughs> yeah. good. Very just, good. But no, it was um, 105 out right outside my door, and inside it was about 95. Yeah. So one part of my early childhood conditioning that I'm actually feeling quite comfortable about currently is folk music. Kind of Joan Byers, Bob Dylan, this kind oh, of stuff. Oh, yeah, Bob Dylan, man. <laughs> and I've realized, and I came to this realization last week, that I wasted a good portion of my childhood. I mean, I can kind of pick at the guitar, but I can't really play the guitar. And I was thinking, if there's something that I should probably learn in the kind of twilight years of my 30s, <laughs> it is how to play the guitar and play a few folk songs reasonably yeah. well. Yeah, that wouldn't... That's that's quite an undertaking. Hmm. But you could certainly do it. So, in the past, I've Practice, had, practice, practice. That's, that's all it amounts to. You well, probably know that. <laughs> within the past year, I've been eyeing up banjos as being uh-huh. a way of, of doing it in a particular... Barbelay-esque style, <laughs> and I think basically if I if I make a if I make a stringed instrument purchase, it'll uh, probably banjo. be a banjo, five string or four string. I think five. Okay, gives me an additional option. <laughs> and, That's right. Uh, Twenty-five percent more. For- yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
so yeah, w- watch this space because my hope is within. And funnily enough, I actually know the local places that are good for banjo purchases because they tend yeah. to have. My wife's into cloth craft. She makes these um, quilts, and she makes them at great speed. Actually, I mean, she puts the uh, you know the the sweatshops in the in yeah. <laughs> East Asia to shame in terms of the speed at which she can create these quilts. But the quilt shops tend to have these kind of folk music shops next door. Ah, uh, yes. You know, well, two, yeah, sorry, sure, two yeah. out of six, you know. Yeah, anyway, yeah, they do kind of go together. Yeah. A sufficient number. So I think next time my wife goes on one of her, they have these things in this part of the world. In fact, I, I have a photo on the Stone Age podcast page associated with what they call these shop hops, where you go to maybe a dozen quilt shops in a couple of days. And I actually enjoy going with my wife on these things because I get to see the Bay Area. And I typically do things, you know, when she stops at the quilt shop, I'll sometimes wander into the quilt shop. In fact, I have to go into the quilt shop because they give you free items if you're on the hop, which means that my wife gets double items if I go along with her as well. Mm-hmm. But it gives you, yeah, there are there are banjo shops along the way. I think Sonoma and the few, there was one in Santa Cruz that I found, and there were a couple of others that I like as well. So yes, I think a banjo is coming up in my near fu- in the near future. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've had a couple banjos. Oh, like, yeah, but I couldn't much do anything with well, them. Well, you you played the guitar historically. Do you yeah, still well, play the yeah. guitar occasionally, or is it no, something you? No, do? I sold it actually. Uh-huh. Got rid of it. You know, I can probably I could still fr- figure out the, but it's been so many years, you know, that you lose. You know, well, I've got this keyboard here, mm-hmm. you know, and for a while I was getting pretty good. I haven't even touched it in a year. I, mm. I could get I could get it back pretty <laughs> easily, but still trying to, you know, it really is a considerable commitment of time mm. to uh to get good at something like that. You know, I mean, yeah. there's, there's no substitute for the number of hours you sit there practicing. Certainly. You know, damn. <laughs> you know, I really want a pill for this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there was a story that one of my co-workers told me, told me associated with, apparently a couple of them had seen it. I was on 60 Minutes. Uh-huh. And a fellow had a head injury and then became like a jazz pianist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Never played the piano previously, but through this head injury, they'd become yeah. a jazz pianist. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, the whole thing struck me a bit like a... Sh- I mean, it was a bit shammy in terms of the way it was put together. I think if they'd been able to, um, you know, become amazing, like, iOS programmer... Well, the question is whether he was, he was really any good. You know, <laughs> I mean, people, in the, especially in jazz, you know, I mean, just because somebody says somebody's a genius, I'll make that decision myself, you know. <laughs> And you will give the thumbs down, Heron. I'm well, I, I'd have to hear the guy, you know. But, I mean, yeah. it's still pretty amazing to go from not playing at all to, uh, you know, I had a friend. God, this was when I lived in Manhattan Beach. and Most of your uh, stories start this way, Heron, but continue. Yeah, anyway, this is, this is many years ago. Mm-hmm. I was in my late 20s, probably. Anyway, uh, this guy came over to my house, and I had a piano, and... And I asked him uh, if he played the piano, and he said he didn't know. He'd never tried. Mm. And he, but the thing is, he was quite serious. He, he didn't. He didn't just think that was funny. Mm. And so he sat down, and he started playing. And and of course it was. I mean, it, he, he wasn't playing. You know, the Star Spangled Banner. He was just hitting rhythms and notes, and mm-hmm. but but it actually. 
he played for like five minutes and it was pretty fucking interesting. <laughs> you know? And so we decide, yes, he can play the piano. <laughs> Surprised me. Surprised Was him too. involved in this in any way, shape, or form, Heron? Uh, well, generally speaking, yes. I don't remember if there was at the moment. Uh, I don't think so. You know, it's funny. It's it's all so vague now from so long ago. Um, I, I, you know, who knows? Maybe I'm making all this up and it's not even true. Who knows? I don't know. There's a dimensionality to the piano. I mean, I think also similarly, there's a certain dimensionality to the guitar. Where oh, yeah. Basically, yeah. if you understand that certain patterns make certain you know, changes in frequency. Yeah, but, yeah, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, like a trumpet or a clarinet or something. Yeah. That just wouldn't work much, <laughs> you know, at all. Well, they have similar, they have similar patterns, but not identical. I mean, the recorder is probably the easiest of those. Yeah, but even that is bizarre if you've ever played one. I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not just as simple as, you know, your fingers going up. It's, it's yeah, yeah, but, but you're right, stringed instruments, uh, have a, a kind of visual logic to them. Hmm. Hmm. So a wide variety of Joe the drummer questions. The first one of his questions, actually, I censored on the Facebook group quite intentionally because <laughs> Facebook has this ability to put in people's names and link them up. So I will read the unabridged version. Well, they're probably listening too. So, I mean, we must be all on their radar. No, by no. Now. I mean, well, the, when I when I read the question, this will become more evident. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Is there an unabridgeable gulf between conformists and nonconformists? This came up when I was listening to your talk with KMO and Larry Yeager. Larry seemed very uppity when you tried to engage him in an exploration of the deeper aspects of the question of consciousness. I didn't feel sure about this, but you said some stuff about it on the last podcast that made me think my assumptions had some merit. My intuition was that Larry Yeager was someone who accepts authority and accepts and expects others to do the same. He knows his place and doesn't like challenging the status quo and doesn't like be it being challenged. You, on the other hand, like to challenge everything that's interesting to you. I realise that I'm making big assumptions. Larry seemed very upset with being challenged. Whether that was due to uh, personality or he just happened to be feeling grumpy, I don't know. Either way, it made me wonder if conformists and nonconformists are just unable to get along <laughs> without winding each other up. <laughs> Well, I must admit there's a certain glee involved in watching conformists get uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. The question is, is I've it... learned over the years to temper that urge though. I mean, I just <laughs> I've I you know, reveled in that for years, but uh I don't think that's the best policy now. <laughs> to talk a little bit more about Larry, he is someone who has, you know, worked in academic institutions for a period of time and worked in relatively conformist environments for most of his career. I mean, truth be told, I have as well. That being said, my view is that my free time is my own, and wherever possible, I will, uh, you know, be as unconformist as I possibly can be. In fact, oftentimes, and I do this actually less with our discussion than I do with most people, Heron, I intentionally play the devil's advocate. I think the interaction with yeah. Larry 
just indicate it to me that in future I probably need to select people for this kind of discussion who are going to be slightly more confrontationally yeah. interesting. Yeah, or if you're going to use the, that those people, then uh, use them in a way that's going to work for them and you. Yes. You know? and, and, yeah, because that's not very productive, really. I mean, it's it can be entertaining, but, <laughs> it, you know, if you're going to talk to them at all, then figure out a way to do it that respects them. You know? Yeah, I've been feeling the same way about the International Society of Artificial Life. So I'm nominally on the board. I'm on the board in an unelected role to be the industry liaison. And for the past year, well, really for the first three months of the past year, I tried relatively hard to get certain aspects of artificial life in, you know, a, a couple of companies, maybe three companies. And the efforts that I did in this light were completely wasted energy, but also I work as an individual in these roles, as, a, as an unconformist individual. And what I've realized through this experience, that it's probably better for me to do things like Conscious in the Cloud in terms of having a public, open environment where people can come and participate and use that to, you know, motivate ideas associated with you know, simulated agents and artificial life. And I think, so anyway, this came to a head this morning because I had to write a couple of paragraphs. There's the European Society for Artificial Life is having their, well, their biannual conference um, in, um, somewhere in Sicily, actually, currently. And I had to provide a paragraph or a Skype call. Um, I opted for the paragraph associated with what I'd done in the past year. And I spent a good portion of it talking about Conscious in the Cloud as being a blueprint to try and get people involved with the, the kind of broader community. But a couple of things have really irritated me in the past few weeks associated with the International Society. The first is, and I may not have told you this, Heron, I think I've talked about it previously, briefly, but I don't think I've gotten into details. The people that founded the field of artificial life, if such a thing exists, and that's open for relative debate as well, don't want to have anything to do with artificial life anymore. In fact, they're actively hostile if you try to contact <laughs> them for interviews or to participate yeah. in any way, shape, or form. What are they interested in? One of them basically has worked as a builder's labourer for the past <laughs> eight years, working on building sites in New Mexico and Arizona. Oh, okay. He's basically oh. a burnt-out academic that didn't get some of his projects funded had his section close and had one of his, you know, founding friends go off and start a, you know, a department in a university in Canada, in Calgary. <laughs> and, you know, there's this kind of notion of kind of professional what have you and, you know, yeah. he's a failed academic and you never realised that this wasn't something that, you know... I mean, it, the whole thing is just really wackadoo from my perspective. Anyway, so he's one of the founding fathers. Okay, so, so he doesn't have anything to do Well, with. here's the interesting thing. So I get an email sent out from the board of the International Society roughly a week ago saying, we've had this great idea. This fellow's name's Chris Langton. We're going to get in contact with Chris Langton and invite <laughs> him to the 14th Artificial Life Conference. What a great idea. Yes. <laughs> so my view associated with this thing is having been to the 13th Artificial Life Conference, it felt like it was the third Artificial Life Conference. They need to be spending more time defining the future of the subject 
rather than trying to invite people who absolutely positively despise, but moreover have done more to damage the field than actually encourage the field. And these are the people that they're looking to actually bring back into the discussion. Well, there must be individual, and you must know individual people who are dedicated workers to try and make something happen in this field, right? Larry Yeager. I don't know. I mean, really, I don't know. I mean, this, I've interviewed a lot of people. I've met a lot of people. But my view now, having had this experience, is, is my work artificial life? Who the fuck cares? It's your work. That's exactly it, my It's point. just what it is. You know, do, do, so my that's just is, a label. Yeah. My view is now, if I go to the 14th. Is it artificial intelligence or artificial in life? Anyway, uh, if yeah. I go to the 14th Artificial Life Conference, I thought about this associated with what can I do? Because I felt like an outsider last time I went. And this time I want to actually emphasize the fact that I'm an outsider. Because last time I think it was just a little bit too subtle. So today it came to me that what I need to do is have a conversation with a series of noble apes in the cloud at the 14th Artificial Life Conference. And I should do it almost as a piece of performance. <laughs> uh, you've got some work to do, though, don't you, to really. actually pull that off? You see, the, the noble apes already make sound, so I can work on that part. The more interesting part is me making the sound to communicate with them, which I can also do through Fourier theory. So I think as a piece of... Okay, so they're not speaking English. No, of course not. That would be so boring, Heron, and it would make me look rational if I spoke English to them. Well, it depends on how you're speaking English. You you know, you can use English to really offend people if you want to. My view is that (laughs) making high-frequency whining sounds and then having the noble apes communicating back with me would actually make it look more like surrealist performance art than having an English conversation. Yeah, it might. You're right. It might be. It might actually be interesting if you could get a kind of improvisation going. You know. Yes. Uh, That might be kind of interesting. That'd be more like a music program. But yes. that could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Don't talk to them. Jam with them. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. So that is my aim for... And I'm going to do it as a workshop because that way I can just do it. No one's going to assess me critically. And <laughs> I think that's that's the level of satire that this thing has been raised to. The only outstanding question is whether I should dress appropriately or not. What, in a, like a wizard's outfit? That was exactly my thought. I was thinking more of the pimp line, but wizard and oh, pimp. Oh, a pimp. Very close okay, no, it. you're right. A pimp would be, that's good too. I like that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, a pimp wizard. Exactly. Or the wizard pimp. There you go. The wizard pimp. Exactly. So yeah, my, and it's going to be held in New York City, so highly appropriate. <laughs> but my view is that, yeah, I need to do some piece of outlandish performance art to actually make the point that and what is life. the point? The point is that um, artificial life as a concept is in no way defined by this group. And I think also, if I invited the media, this thing could become a thing in and of itself. You know, a definition that intelligence can exist independently of human entities, and then it is our responsibility to communicate with the intelligence. I just hear desperate lighting sounds here, and I don't, maybe I'm not on the same level. I don't know. 
No, it, this is. Uh, I've always thought that it's stupid to dumb down machines to communicate exactly. with us. Yes. You know, uh, we should learn to make sense. Yes. You know, rather than trying to figure out a way to program a computer to be as confused as humans are. Exactly. So anyway, <laughs> that, that's the level that I'm going to take this thing. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how it'll work out, but I've got a year to work on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's pick up another... I've got, I've got a series of Marie Camacho and Joe the Drummer questions here. Oh, this is an interesting one. Joe writes, You spoke about your brother's lack of communication. Heron suggested you explicitly tell them that if they don't respond within a certain period, you will cease to communicate. You seem to think that this was implicit. Well, let me read this. You seem to think that this was implicit and didn't need to say anything. I struggle with this kind of thing. If someone doesn't tell me what's very clear, I don't feel like I know what they're thinking. Is it cultural? English people don't seem capable of saying something direct, and Americans seem too direct. Maybe culture has <laughs> something to do with it. Maybe it's personality, too. Yep. So, I reflected on this purely through Joe's question through the week. And maybe I need to expand on this concept a little bit more broadly. This is iterated through a series of experiences that I and people close to me have had. If you make something an issue, when it's clearly based on someone else's behaviour, it's very difficult to near impossible to get someone to acknowledge that if it is part of their general behaviour, that they are doing anything that is wrong. And... Moreover, what is wrong? See, it's not about being making somebody wrong. Well, it is if you. I mean, this is my. This is my. No, it's just it. simply stating what what your own parameters are. That's all. But I guess my view is that if if my brothers cared about my parameters to a certain extent, then they would already be mindful of this thing. Oh yeah, that's true. It's just like I say, I do it more for me than for them. Yes. It's just this way I know that everybody is making an, I mean, cause until I make the, make it explicit, I don't really know just how explicit it is for them. It, you know, I don't know. I assume they're probably unconscious language monkeys and, and they don't actually know exactly why they do what they do. Well, I guess, I guess it's to do with the notion of success, perceived success in what you're doing. My view is that if my brothers don't have telephones and if they communicate through meeting in social places where they meet friends on a regular basis, mm. or if they have means of communication that I am not a part of, it's a waste of my energy, emotional or otherwise, to start setting ultimatums to them. And I think ultimately the conditions are going to deteriorate anyway whether or not I make something explicit. See, again, I don't see it as you're you're the one who puts the word ultimatum on it. And and I don't see it as an ultimatum at all. I just simply see it as a statement of uh the way I'm feeling and thinking. Like you know, it, you do what you you know, and you'll do what you think, you know, what you want with that. Well, except I my view is that it's very difficult, particularly if a party is disinterested. Is this the great word use of the word disinterested? Yes, perhaps so. N not interested? No, disinterested or means... Disinterested means you have an active 
disinterest for it. No, disinterested means that the party, the party does not have an interest in the behavior. It's different. It's actually a subtle difference. Here okay. I'm channeling my grandmother's pedantry perfectly. Uh-huh. Anyway, my view is that if I stated something to my brothers along the lines of, I've tried to call you four times, I'm not going to call you again. Yeah. That... The I'm not going to call you again. Ah, okay, I got it. Yeah. Fits into the description of an ultimatum. Yeah, I got it. You're right. Uh, it, it, and they may very well see it that way too. Yes, yeah. exactly. And whether it's intent, yeah, how it's intended is exactly beside the point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, again, it's your family. You, you, you know the situation better than anybody else. I'm just talk, talking about my general. And, and actually, I'm, I'm thinking this is probably for more with, like in business situations or other kind of social situations that don't involve family members that you've known all your life. I mean, that's, that's really a very special case. Mm. So, uh, I think, I think in this case, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I think generally speaking, uh, you know, if I've, uh, tried to communicate with somebody several times and not heard back from them, then I will send them one last communication, letting them know that, uh, I've tried to communicate with them. Uh, and, you know, if for some reason these were oversights and you really do want to get back with me, I'd be happy to hear from you, but this is my last communication. <laughs> yes. I guess. There have been a number of circumstances in my life where I could have elected to do that. And what typically happens instead is that 10 years go past <laughs> and then you hear from the person again. Yeah. And you then make the judgment call about whether you want to invest the time with this person. Yeah. Well, I just went through something like this with my, uh, my, I have a half sister. Oh, I didn't realize that. Th- that I haven't seen since, you know, I don't know when we, when I first got together with my family, you know, mm. and, um, we've talked a couple of times, but, uh, and she sends me an email every 10 years or something saying how much she wants to, to get in, you know, to mm. do something, you know, and then nothing. And then anyway, so I got an email a couple of months ago saying that she was going to be in LA for the weekend mm-hmm. and, uh, and wanted to get together. And, I looked at that. She didn't have a car, so if we were going to get together, I was going to have to drive to L.A. That, mm-hmm. that doesn't sound like any fun to me. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to drive to L.A. She's going to tell me about her kids and her family and her job and whatever else, and I really just don't care. So <laughs> you know? this is interesting because I I didn't realize that you had a half-sister. In fact, this is the first. Is, is she a biological sister or is she a, your adopted half-sister? Uh, biological. Okay. I didn't realize that you had any knowledge of your biological family. Really? Uh, you, okay. We've never talked about it yet. My bro, I have a brother who's two years older than me. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I met them along with my mother, um, back whenever that was a million years ago. And was this after your adopted mother had passed away? Um, you know, I don't know. You know, I, it's really amazing. I, I just give no thought much to the past anymore. <laughs> when those things happen, I, I think, um, I think my mother was still alive though. For, for now that, now that, you know, it, I've just been floating around my brain for a few minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't do- remember now if I talked to her about it or not. I might not have. So is your, 
Is your half-sister older than you or younger than you? Uh, she's younger than me. So this is interesting. So you were adopted between a biological brother Yeah, my, and- my older brother is two years old, and uh, he... She was, she had him. He was like a year and a half old and she was pregnant with me. Her husband left her. She was in LA, no way to survive. And she stayed here and her doctor arranged the adoption within the doctor's clients, you know. Oh, okay. With you, with your, with my, yeah, the people who adopted me, it was all arranged several months before I was born. Gosh. And, uh, and she stayed in LA with her two year old son. Uh, for the birth and then left and went to Washington State, uh, returned home and never told anybody about me. Gosh. <laughs> so your half-sister is how much younger than you? Oh, I don't know. Maybe 10 years. Gosh. Okay. Interesting. And they I all live in I, Honestly, I don't know. I, I really don't know. And yes. they all live in Washington State or she now lives somewhere no, else? No, she lives in Washington State. My brother lives in Mesa, Arizona. Ah. Did your brother go to Vietnam as well? No, I don't. No, you know, I don't know. I don't think so. I, th- I think he, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. Hmm. And how frequently do you see your brother? Um, almost never. Right. Yeah. You know, it was fun meeting them all and all that, and, and it answered a lot of questions. My brother and I are really similar in a lot. I mean, we even use some same phrases, or at least we did when we met. <laughs> you know, it was yes. sort of spooky. <laughs> wow. Know? But, uh, but basically, you know, we all had lives and that was all very interesting. We met for a week in the, in the mountains in Arizona and he owned a construction company and, uh, they had a plane. And so he flew me around in his plane over the Grand Canyon and everything. That was fun. Yeah. But uh, after it was over, I mean, they're really, you know, he's got his life. I had my life. Everybody, you know, yes. And they were in different parts of the country, and I, so that nothing much ever happened, really. Right. That's fascinating. Why are we talking about that? There was I was making a we point. We were talking some, about we were talking about families and ultimatums, and this came up. With oh yeah. Oh yeah. Half sister. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Anyway, so uh, we, we finally came to the decision. I just I felt really awkward about it. You know, I was just saying, you know. We're gonna we're gonna get together and and we're gonna talk about a bunch of stuff that that I'm gonna be bored with probably and you too probably because you're probably not interested in the shit I want to talk about and then you're gonna go home back to Washington and I'm not gonna hear from you for another ten years so so what's the fucking point of this why am I gonna drive to L A and we're gonna get together and have this heartfelt communication that we could have been having all along for the last twenty years but we haven't. You know, and, yes. and so I, anyway, so I said, nah, no thanks. I don't think, I don't think I'm going to drive to LA. And I tried to be nice about it. You know, I mean, I wasn't quite as blunt as I've just Certainly. been, but, um, I, I haven't heard from her since. <laughs> mm. Yes. Interesting stuff, family. Well, again, you know, that's just a story as far as I can see. <laughs> so I was thinking, my wife is very, in fact, I'm not even, okay. The anonymous person who I'm supposed to talk about now instead of my wife is very interested in this notion of a hundred episodes. 
And the theory is... A hundred episodes of what? Well... Of of this podcast, Let's talk about Stone Age. Okay. How many have we done? I'm really not sure. I think we're we're potentially, I think, in the 60s, maybe in the early 70s. Well, I've got it at like... um, uh, I think it's 50. 50? Are we in the 50s? Yeah, I know you had a different number than I do. I think you have a higher number. Yeah, I, I threw a couple of extra people in and, um, yeah, and, and cut a few and, yeah, it's all, it's all slightly different. But I was thinking for our. Yeah, hundred... I have it. Okay, I have us at 52. Okay, that's probably around where I have us at, maybe 54. So, okay, so we're still a long way away from 100. Yeah, yeah. But I was thinking when we reach 100, we probably should do something big. <laughs> Really, that's right. The centennial. <laughs> I was thinking like eight hours worth of podcast. Just oh, this right. Talk till we drop, kind of. Uh, uh, you know, I was thinking we could take the day off, <laughs> have a holiday. <laughs> I could produce 60 minutes of silence and release it as a podcast. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah, it's a meditation project. Uh, who knows? That's hard. Uh, yeah, if we're halfway there, we got a long thing. Boy, I would imagine. We ought to probably both be pretty different by a hundred than we are right now. Yeah, I'm, I actually one of the things that the Sam guy messaged me about was that he was really sad when we stopped recording podcasts, and I just said I thought it needed to happen. <laughs> He's just, I guess, the perception of the listeners is just that we exist as two voices that come together and produce content for them. Well, or what else would we be? Yeah. I mean, it, it is a very interesting thing. I mean, we don't exist outside of this. As soon as I hang up, I just disappear until next week. Exactly. <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> Number four from Cho the Drummer. On the radio interview with KMO's pal, you, he means me here, said something interesting about 9-11 that doesn't get said very often. As I recall it, you opined that people outside America, uh, for people outside America, 9-11 wasn't that much of a shock. I think you suggested that in the rest of the world, it fitted into a familiar enough narrative, and it's not that surprising that the US was a target. This is not what I said. And, but I want to be perfectly clear associated with what I said in this circumstance. My view is that 9-11 exists in a continuum of historical context. And what interests me about the notion of 9-11 in this country is that the historical context is never acknowledged. That out of the blue, for no reason (laughs) whatsoever, America was attacked on 9-11. That's right. How dare them? For no reason at all. And the the interesting process... Who would have thought it? The interesting process (laughs) I've gone through this week is actually I've, I've... re-familiarized myself with a series of events and numbers. In some instances, the numbers were far greater than I had recalled, although some of these numbers have been revised um, since I, you know, started on this. But I wanted to start with a little deconstruction, because I think this is one of the most interesting ways to explore this problem. When I say the IRA to you, Heron, what are you know? What are some things that come to you when 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 someone says the IRA? Yeah, well, obviously income taxes. <laughs> well, well. <laughs> oh no, it's the wrong one. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, they're sort of the same, aren't they? I mean, they come in with guns and masks over their faces. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. 
yeah, yeah. Obviously, uh, Irish bombing terrorists who blow up pubs and kill innocent people. Yes. Right. I mean. So here's the, here's the interesting. Here's the interesting thing about this. When I say to you Al Qaeda, what yeah. comes into your head? Oh, uh, 9-11, probably the first thing. Yeah. And, and they're blowing up embassies and killing people and cutting their heads off and shit like that. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I've made a point previously, which I think is a, a point which I'm going to use in the context of the IRA Al Qaeda discussion, that I think of Al Qaeda as not being, well, I think the religious aspect of Al Qaeda is vastly tertiary to other aspects of Al-Qaeda. And I've started using the IRA as an example of this. Mm -hmm. Because when people describe the IRA, the religious distinction associated with the IRA is very rarely mentioned. Yet when people mention Al-Qaeda, the religious distinction is the center. And it's very curious to me. If you think of Al-Qaeda as a secular, descriptive group, and if you look at 9-11 in particular, the primary justification that bin Laden gave, both in writing and in audio and even in video, is associated with the sanctions on Iraq. And this is never talked about in this country, because for whatever reason, discussing what occurred in Iraq from 1991 through to 2003 seems to be just completely off limits in terms of an understanding of basically what sanctions here imposed by the UN, but thinly veiledly imposed by the US quite fundamentally, did to a country and did to a population. And it's really very fascinating to start exploring what actually occurred in Iraq through this period of time because you start to realize unquestionably that there was a despotic regime in power, but also that the means of dealing with this despotic regime was basically to kill the population through starvation, through lack of access to medical supplies, through a series of ways that meant that the population couldn't overcome the despotic regime in any way, shape or form. And if anything became not only you know, subjects of the despotic regime, but also really heavily weakened through lack of food, lack of medical supplies, and a variety of other things. And the fact that it was an outrage, or seen as an outrage, in a large portion of the world, but was never really been acknowledged, certainly in this country, and probably not in the UK, or any of the other countries that, you know, went on perfectly happily with this, and then mysteriously you have 9-11. So, I mean, my view is, and then from, you know, historically you can go back, you can go back to Algeria, you know, in these kind of framings. But my view is that 9-11 exists in a continuum, and it exists in a continuum that has ultimately seen vastly more loss of life in the parts of the world that have been, you know, attacked, invaded, and these kind of <laughs> things. And ultimately... This is something that you need to, you know, have some mindfulness of when you start describing these circumstances. Anyway, that was the point I was trying to make. Heron, do you have anything to add? 
Um, I'm not even sure what we're talking about anymore. Well, we're talking about basically a comment that I made in a radio interview that Joe the Drummer wanted more examples associated with. Hmm. Yeah. Well, then you've answered the question. It was about something you said. I don't really, you know, <laughs> have anything to add to what you said. So, let me see. Marie Camacho asks a few questions. Hello, Marie. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Some of them are associated with Justin's master's thesis, so I'm going to scrap that. Are you familiar with Mike Hastings at all? No. So Mike Hastings was the fellow who was embedded uh, with Stanley McChrystal and captured what I think is actually pretty middle-of-the-road stuff from a military fellow talking about the president. I mean, heaven forbid that the yeah. military <laughs> might actually have an opinion. I mean, yeah. that's just shocking. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, what's more fascinating is that basically that at the top of the military, they exist like, um, you, you're familiar with the film Eyes Wired Shut, aren't you? Yeah. That basically they have this kind of almost Illuminati-esque <laughs> like sexual, like, you know, alcohol, more, you know, it's just, it all seems very, very curious when you observe it. But when you realize that it's probably just part and parcel of being, you know, powerful warlords, uh, be they in Afghanistan or in the US, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought Mike Hastings journalism in inverted commas here was, just what you'd expect. I mean, it's yeah. interesting, actually. I mean, I feel the same way about WikiLeaks. I feel the same way about... Well, Snowy, you know, but, in a sense, know. the the general should have been savvy enough to understand that he had a journalist in front of him. Well... You know, that shows some lack of judgment on his part. I guess. I mean, I'm, my feeling is that, actually, he probably wanted to be fired. Well, that then that case, that was a wise move. He no, did I mean, I, I think actually it was very well planned to yeah. make a particular political <laughs> point. What's more, or slightly more interesting, particularly if you like conspiracies, about uh, Mike Hastings was that he died in a car crash about six <laughs> months after he did the report, maybe a year after, I don't know, some time frame after. And, of course, he had cannabis and, I think, cocaine, in, in his, his bloodstream. Ah, okay. And yeah. it came out that his family was very concerned and that he'd recently relapsed into drug use and yeah. QED. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So the guy, obviously, there's no point in paying any attention to anything he said. <laughs> well, you can't pay much attention to what he says now, anyway. So, yeah, it is, I mean, my view is that this is, if you're going to invest your time in conspiracies, I don't really think the uh, Mike Hastings car crash really is probably the, the place to look. I think there is considerably more kind of curious meat on a variety of other bones here. But here I just think it was an individual who, you know, saw a little bit of uh, a little bit of fame and, um, you know, had particular proclivities and liked driving fast cars. I don't know. I, I can't see a conspiracy. There. Yeah, I don't uh, know anything about it. To begin with, so <laughs> I missed that day, I guess. Yes. It is interesting, actually, because I think if you don't watch news and you don't watch YouTube and you don't listen to particular kinds of podcasts, 
these kind of things are probably it's funny actually we had some um we had some model rail radio folk in town last sunday we went out to dinner with them actually and they said well, isn't it terrible about this fire my wife and i looked at each other one foot fire <laughs> apparently there's a fire in yosemite currently that's yes. the bay area's worst yes system. it's one of the worst fires in a long long yes. long time yeah, yeah, my wife and I were blissfully ignorant of said film. Yeah, yeah. Well, I only know about it as I've read about what a terrible, terrible fire it is. Yes. <laughs> I haven't seen any video from it, uh, you know, and I've just read the headlines, the water supply and electricity supply and is threatened and uh, Yosemite and, you know, yeah. Hmm. It is interesting because I'm now watching on YouTube a series of, like, young 20-something folk who are doing their own kind of independent <laughs> narrative stuff. Yeah, I've seen that uh, on the internet a lot, of people who are taking other videos and then commenting on them, like, yes. you know, like a commentator. Yes. <laughs> it is interesting, actually, that the bad news sources have become... <laughs> the, the funny thing is, of course, Al Jazeera America has now come out, and yeah. my wife was very, sorry, the person who will be unnamed in this podcast was very <laughs> excited about this actually coming out. So I decided to switch it on one evening. Is that different than their English edition? Um, they got a special one just for America? Yeah, they have, they have one just for America. And uh, the commentator was talking to an <laughs> expert who was cross-eyed. <laughs> and I thought to myself... Oh, yeah, that is not going to happen on Channel 4. No. On NBC. Uh-uh. <laughs> Yeah, Cross-eyed experts are No there. way. And I realized something. That, <laughs> you got to love Al Jazeera. That, That's great. That, yeah, that actually on television, because and truth be told, if people saw me or Heron, no one would listen to the Stone Act podcast. So, yeah, it is astonishing that, um, I mean, I, I watched Al Jazeera English. I used to actually do the Arabic. There was a translation package, and I used to... Al the Arabic Al Jazeera site was historically very interesting, and I would use translation packages on it. I mean, in terms of the conflicts in the world, particularly the conflicts in, you know, the Middle East and what have you, that area, Iraq, Afghanistan, that whole area, the Arabic Al Jazeera was really very good, and I would use translation packages for a period of time, particularly when I was in the UK. Al Jazeera English came out, and I used to watch it. They had a streaming app that I used to watch quite a bit as well, um, just in passing. They did do the terrible cycle thing where they'd show the same stuff over and over again, which would get kind of irritating. But I watched maybe 15 minutes of Al Jazeera America and then just realized I don't need... I mean, I use Google News, and I don't find Google News particularly interesting, I mean, in terms of what it serves me. But a lot of this stuff, I actually... If there's anything really important, that you'll get a clue at Google News that you need to go look at something. Yeah. I use Wikipedia far more frequently than I use any other yeah. news service. And I, well, think... I use Google News and Wikipedia, those two yeah. together. I use Google News every day, at least once, just yeah. to see if, you know, the world ended. Yeah. You know, I mean, if something really big is going to happen, you're going to see it there. Yeah. And then you can go look around and see what's going on. Yeah. So... The other thing that happens is that this person who will be unnamed will text me various news stories if something astronomical has happened. 
And the thing that interests me through that is through the week, there's a, a, a he really is a British performer, but he's always called an Australian performer, called Rolf Harris. I'm not sure if you've had any exposure to Rolf Harris, but he's now 83. Okay, yeah, he was he he did had some song back yes, in the yeah, he, 60s early. T- time Timey kangaroo, kangaroo down, down yeah, sport. That's, that's yeah. One, yes. Yes. And he also has one called Six White Boomers, which is the only Christmas song that I sing for people because it's actually <laughs> quite an interesting Christmas song associated <laughs> with these kangaroos that Santa connects up to his sleigh and continues ah, flying huh? through Australia delivering gifts. <sighs> anyway, it came out this Gotta week. love those language monkeys, boy. They come <laughs> up with some great stories. Okay, okay go on. <laughs> it came up this week that Rolf Harris has, and this goes across, um, what's the fellow's name, Jimmy Savile? Although it's not actually related to Jimmy Savile, although it was part of the same inquiry. They mm-hmm. just started looking at performers and working out how many of them had pedophile connections. Oh, and, and so Rolf Harris is... Rolf Harris has fallen out, unfortunately. He has um, 12 charges, I think, including three that relate to taking, I guess, electronic photos of a minor last year, but also <laughs> a series of indecent exposures, I think, in 1980 and 1986. And you just... You've got to wonder, you know, what the hell is going on? Yes. You know, yeah. Yeah. I, I do reflect on... Well, I've been crazy before, so I know, you know, I'm just lucky that I, you know, it it didn't get so far as to doing weird shit, but, but you know, I mean, I've done stuff that I, that part of me was sitting there looking at me saying, what the fuck are you doing? Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. The age That's of scary consent, shit. The age of consent is lower in the UK. It's lower by two years. It's 16, not 18. Uh-huh. But yeah, it is very, very strange. I think almost this. Well, I thought we were, we were talking about really young kids. I mean, fourteen. Shit, there. I've seen some pretty good-looking fourteen-year-olds who are hot and developed. You know. <laughs> yes. You know. Uh, but I mean, if we're talking about six-year-olds, no, no, we're talking. You know. We're talking. We're talking about fourteen-year-olds here with yeah. Ralph Harris. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's what's claimed anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I just think I think that sticky bit that whole thing is such such a quagmire, man. Yes. I mean in most tribal cultures they have very different ideas on sexuality. Well, I mean even in this country, children as young as fourteen can be married with their parents' consent. Yeah. Which I don't actually know how that works legally. Because if you have statutory late rape law and then you have marriage law that allows for children that young to get married. It just yeah. doesn't make any sense to me. Well, oh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> oh, you you thought it should be rational. Okay, I got it. So, yeah. so, I mean, I guess the state turns a blind eye if they're legally married. I mean, it, it, it yeah, that, no that overrides it because eh? we got, you know, you paid us 50 bucks. You know, you got yourself a marriage license, so we'll you leave you alone. You got a piece of paper, so it's not that's right. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. It's okay now. That's astonishing. If she's under... Under 14, actually, it's probably $100 for the license. Though. Yeah. And you need the parent's <laughs> signature as well. Yeah, and that's an extra $100. Yeah. <laughs> Will we be cynical in these circumstances? I mean, look, in the past, you've talked relatively positively associated with this whole, 
you know, Sartre. You, in fact, we've we've closeted it associated with bonobos previously. That you know, this whole notion of sexuality mm. and age is something that you've talked about quite strongly previously. Maybe yeah, just yeah. I don't well, know. again, I, I think I think it's a young man's sport. If you do it right, uh, you move on. You know, you do that, you know, like I said, I, I consider myself just very fortunate to have lived when I did, yes. a, you know, and I really pretty much got that out of my system. Yes. You know, I mean, it's still, you know, I mean, it's not that that is impossible to happen again, but it's just uh, not something that drives me anymore. Hmm. You know, if it happens, it'll happen and it'll probably be fun. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, I, you know, like I say, but all in all, when I look at the opportunities that I've had over the years to get involved sexually with a woman, when I really looked at that, I could just see that, you know, probably everybody's life would be much happier if I just said no to this. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know? I mean, that's an interesting assertion. That's almost the asexual assertion, really. Well, it's just, no, it's not asexual because I'm still strongly attracted to women. Hmm. Uh, it's just that, I've, you know, given my experience with language monkeys and in the past, and, you know, sexuality is, is I say, it's great fun, but it's just not what it was when I was 22. It's not cosmic anymore. It's just, yes. it's almost, it's almost funny, actually. <laughs> it's, it's a yes. little, it's a little hard to take. I mean, it's so passionate when you're 20, you know. Yes. Or, or 30 even, man. It's just, that's even better, man, because you've had time to practice being passionate, you know. So. <laughs> you've got strengths. That's right. You know how to really be passionate by yes. that. And, and now it just looks sort of funny. Yeah. It looks like a sort of out of control language monkey, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is not bad. Like I say, if I find myself in a situation where I choose to go for it, mm. then we'll see. <laughs> you know, but yes. that, that's just a little difficult to imagine. You know, I can't imagine what. But of course, that would be the case, wouldn't it? It's going to come out of the blue if it comes. Yeah. Yeah, just like nine eleven. <laughs> <laughs> Just like 9-11. I think, I think that's the title for the show this week. Easily found. Easily found. It is a very strange thing. I mean, I, it's funny actually working with this comic book artist because she will write things which are just so crazy to me <laughs> in written language that I don't actually know. I mean, I look at a lot of my interactions as being almost like I'm dealing with an automata that's just producing information <laughs> that I'm consuming. Yeah. I'm talking about in general. I'm not talking about yeah. this artist in particular. Okay. Yeah. But she doesn't want to acknowledge her own, like, the ability for her to see the error in her own work seems to require at least two months' difference. And now she's writing this stuff, which is making me feel like I should just really walk away from this whole circumstance. I ebb and flow on this. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. not... Because I feel I've invested a certain amount of time and a certain amount of money, which I would have yeah. to do again. Yeah, but the question person. is, do you want to... Yeah, but the question is, yeah, how much more do you want to invest in this? It just strikes yeah. me as ridiculous that we spend so much time working on this character Tom's face. Yeah. 
that she still delivers artwork which is stunningly bad, just associated with this one character. And when I point out to her how bad, and how this is surreal because there are other characters in this comic book who are drawn flawlessly throughout, yet for whatever reason she just can't draw this character. <laughs> and it is really striking because there yeah. are, and I've told you previously, there are half a dozen versions yeah. of this character that come through. That, you know, well, he's a very metamorphic kind of guy, see, I mean, a chameleon, you know. Yeah, something like that. I don't yeah. know. I mean, my view is actually that any listener to the Stone Age podcast will see this immediately in the comic book, to the point where it will almost be satirical. I almost feel that I need to actually pixelate this character. As a means of like identifying <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, as the one that's totally unidentifiable. Yeah, like his real <laughs> yeah, name go. is used, but he is completely pixelated. Yeah, we we've, we've had to hide that uh, because it's dangerous. We you we yes. don't you don't know what he actually looks like. Yes, otherwise your life would be in danger. We'd have to kill you. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. Well, that takes care of that. You just solved the problem. Yeah, I'm actually thinking of putting it to her, although she will take offense at it. I'm sure. Well, you don't have to even get her involved in it. You can do it after she's done and paid. Yes. <laughs> you know, post-production. Yeah, post-production. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness, Heron. There is a camera that is represented here, which I realized when she drew it initially had to be right. That was one of the few things that I was going to really put my foot down on. It was, an, it's called the Minolta... 110 Zoom SLR. It's a small mm. Italian camera. That you, you remember the 110 format film? It was like a cartridge film? Oh, vaguely. Yeah. Anyway, it was an SLR. I, you looked through the lens and you saw what came out of the... Um, well, you looked through the viewfinder and you saw There's what a came viewfinder, out of the lens. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it was, I think, the only SLR camera for the 110 film. I've decided to actually build a digital version of it as a, as a thing to do. I'm going to take an existing mid-range SLR and take it apart and put it in the inside a the case. Yeah. <laughs> because the one I really like the format. It looks it looks a bit like a sandwich with a lens on it. I mean, it's a very curious shaped camera, <laughs> quite unlike any other camera that you would see. But this is the camera that is embodied through this writing. Um so I've I mean, I already own one. It's somewhere in storage. But in the past week, because they go for literally... I mean, folks listening in, if you want to buy something esoteric associated with the Stone Age podcast, you spend between $15 and $25 on eBay, you can get one of these cameras. And they're aesthetically quite interesting things. So, yeah. I, I you know, I've been really surprised at how good the camera on my iPad is. Yes. Uh, much better than the my phone. I, I think there's something wrong on, with my iPhone camera because its pictures just suck. Is it a 4S or a 5? 4S. Yeah, the 4S cameras were a bit strange. Yeah. They were a little I, bit grainy. Well, yeah. It, I, I don't know if it was everybody or just mine. I yeah. mean, that they were touting the one on the 4S as a, a really big deal. Well, it was an improvement over the 3S. Or well, maybe, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. If I make a version of Noble 8 that I have to communicate with, I'm probably going to have to invest in some computing power in the near future to do that. I've always actually liked the minis as a means of running um, a Mac that can kind of do its own thing and not has, you don't have to connect with regularly. 
Yeah, I have a little mini on my desk here. I yeah. use it for uh, for the TeamSpeak server. Yeah, and I think I'll probably buy another mini specifically for that purpose to just run kind of continuously running Nobleape and yeah. kind of evolving Nobleapes accordingly. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting, actually, since Bob Bottrom has a job and since I've kind of floated this startup idea, I'm actually going back through the Nobleape source code and making some quite savage changes. I'm actually making it a lot more kind of compact and also optimizing quite a bit of it. And really this whole thing associated with on one side kind of defining Noble Ape in a way that, you know, can be understood in a startup. And also the fact that Bob Bottrom has just submitted such a vast quantity of work that I can kind of cherry pick aspects of it and not remove Bob's work historically, but just actually create a far kind of tighter core associated with what Noble Ape is. And I think actually I'm probably going to do more rapid releases. I haven't done a proper release of Noble Ape in at least a year. So I'm debating sending you some of this comic book project so you can rip on it or, or be positive about it. I mean, I don't know which way you'll go. As no, well. I'll probably hate it. Yeah, that's my assumption. <laughs> I mean, it's really actually very surreal to me because I, I don't, I don't know how to extract myself from the situation now. My hope is that it could get better, but the reality is that I'm struck by that she's actually submitting inked artwork that is as bad as I'm getting currently, and it's actually becoming a point of frustration. Yeah. I just got to nix this thing, I think, here. Well, that's that's the choices. Yeah, that's what you have to do is figure out what are you going to do now. Well, I mean, I could actually do it. This is one of the few situations where I would be perfectly comfortable to actually present an ultimatum. Because I think this is actually one of the circumstances where I have no lasting working relationship with this woman, but she needs to understand. No, but even if you did an ultimatum, it's still not going to work. Yeah. You know, because you still don't, you don't have faith in her. Yeah. You know, and and again, anyone you can't talk to, I'm just telling you, man, I don't see how you could possibly work with anybody. Well, no, what you need is a high standard of work. And if you don't have the high standard of work, then, yeah. Well, but maybe... Well, you're right. I mean, that's that's an issue too. I mean, but you can't escape from that circumstance. No, that's a separate issue. Yeah. Well, that and that's yeah, that's a weird one too. That's well, that's see, you're learning a lot here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah all the bad stuff. Well, yeah. but how else are you going to learn it? There's well, it's no interesting school actually to go because to I mean, this. historically, I've looked at writing, and now I'm looking at not writing but actually forming a startup instead of the writing. So I've taken a body of work that I've written on and translating it into actual software, which I've written on and basically developed the software in advance. But this is a completely different thing. I think what I need to do is work with an artist that produces small amounts of fixed work. This long-term artist project is just, I don't know, it's just not well, again, something I can work Well, again, really, you, you, I don't think you can have a generalized opinion about any of this. Yeah. You're going to end up working with an individual human being. Yeah. And and whoever that person is is going to be unique. And finding people, like I said, that's, that's always been a block for me, is finding people that I felt that I could really work with. I, I find that I can't work with most people. Yeah. I find their their level of almost everything is just intolerable. It's interesting, actually, because having if I, if I cull the work now, I could still do an internal like PDF Stone Ape download of the work 
uh-huh. please, or something. I could turn it into something. It wouldn't just be lost work. No, it's there. Yeah. What you've got, yeah, in all of its glory. Yeah, scary stuff. I'm actually going to try the pixelated Tom experiment <laughs> and just see how crazy it is because this could this could be the turning point that of actually cult. that could be that could be yeah it could look like pac-man or something yeah no this could be the turning point of cult you know <laughs> i've got to try this thing here and i've got to work yeah, or one of the through. mario brothers kind of animation <laughs> yeah no this the, there aren't going to be similar pixels from image to image with this thing here okay yeah, i just just totally random yeah bunch it's just of, gonna be random noise Color or uh, black, and, black white? and white? So it'll be grayscale. The whole thing is the whole thing grayscale. The whole thing's black and white. Oh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. No, I had a, I had a particular vision with it. Oh, okay. So that you, for whatever reason, you wanted black and white. Yeah, yeah I wanted a black and white um, because based on the volume of work to colorize it, to do all these additional things would just drive me crazy. It'd take three years to have a colorized version. Oh, it'd be very, yeah, it'd be a lot bigger project. Yeah, it's already a huge project. You know, so... Well, actually, I'm not... Well, it's just more expensive. It's not a bigger project. I mean, you, once the color in, I mean, the issue no, is... No, it takes time to color. It's not a... It's not. Well, I know. I mean, it takes time, but... You know, it takes time to draw. It's just it, it adds a, it adds another bit of time to it. I, I estimated that it would roughly double the work in terms of time. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. At least. Well, yeah. Like I say, it's just about whether you need it or not, or whether you yeah. want it or not. If it doesn't, if it's not that important to have it, then it's not that important to have it. Yeah. I'm going to try the pixelated thing. I mean, I've already got I've already got enough to produce a comic, like a single comic, pixelated. Throw it up on, you know, Kickstarter, see if it floats. I mean, that's the whole experiment. But I don't know, I need to, I mean, either I keep using her and just pixelate the main character, or I find another <laughs> artist. And everything else is just fine. It's just, astonishing, just, Heron! You've not, this is why I want to send it to you, because you don't understand it unless you see it. Yeah. It's like a surreal nightmare yeah, for yeah. me. Yeah. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Maybe, like I say, you've, you've hired a demon who, who is, uh, just basically fucking with you. I believe that's the case. You know? I she could perfectly well case. draw you quite easily to any stack, but she just eats your fucking guts. Yeah. And she's fucking with you. Yeah. This is NSA kind of shit here, Aaron. <laughs> this is NSA shit. That's right. That's right. That's even more so, right? She works for NSA. Exactly. Yeah. It all comes together. <laughs> it may now, of course, now I see. Yes. yes. It all makes sense now. Yes. Well, Heron, I think we found a natural conclusion to the evening. It has been a pleasure as always. I will try to have a broader list of topics from uh, listeners. And actually, really, what's been lacking this week is my own topics. I haven't been, um, I haven't been thinking enough. Oh, well, whatever. As long as we've got other people to do it for us, then yeah. why not, you know? Yeah. Well, I've got to say goodnight, Aaron. Pleasure as always. Talk next week. Take care.